to his coming. You're listening to the Watchers of Westeros. I am the king. A Game of Thrones podcast. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Fire cannot kill a dragon. Lion doesn't concern himself with the opinions of a sheep. I've also heard the phrase, a Lannister always pays his debt. For the night is dark and full of terror. What good is power if you cannot protect the ones you love? We can avenge them. Hello, everybody. And welcome to another episode of The Watchers of Westeros. We're, we're back. We're finally here. We're a little bit late to the Season 5 party, but we are back and ready to discuss the first two episodes of Season 5, The Wars to Come and The House of Black and White. We, we got they were some very interesting episodes that raised some very interesting ideas and some... But some well, it will be interesting to see how a lot of it plays out this season. But here to talk about it with me is my good friend and co-host Kieran. Good evening, Dominic Jones. Yes. It's good to be sitting back in the podcast chair for another roundtable of Game of Thrones, and what a way to kick it off with season five. Now, I guess we have to kind of explain ourselves, yeah, Dominic, as to why we didn't do our. Inaugural show of, of season five mm-hmm. last week, <laughs> and I think we got a pretty good excuse in fairness. Yeah, we? yeah, we do. And I, I should say, you know, introductions are in order. My name is Dominic. I should should have said that first, but you know, it happens. Mistakes are made. Uh, yeah, last week we planned on actually recording together uh, the episode for the wars to come, but things just did not work out. We were out in Anaheim for Star Wars Celebration. Well, Star Wars Celebration Anaheim. And uh, when we were planning to record it, we were planning to record it the night before the big Episode 7 trailer reveal while we were in line. And uh, just situations arose that made it so that we didn't really get a chance to record it. And then the rest of the weekend was just so busy and, and crazy, but so much fun. I mean, you can see a lot of it uh, all on on StarWars.com and, and on YouTube and stuff. And it was it was crazy and fun, but we just didn't get another chance to, uh, to sit down and, and record the episode. So uh, we'll be covering The Wars to Come and The House of, of Black and White tonight uh in, in this episode and then as we continue on for the rest of the season you know kicking off next week with high sparrow and 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 everything from that point on should be uh, on a weekly basis we hope <laughs> as as we continue on with this season and and see where things go uh so let's let's jump into things right away and start with the wars to come uh just kieran what was your overall impression of this episode Oh, it was a great episode to really kick off season five, the wars to come. It's the clues in the title here. It's it's building up to something yeah. much larger, much grander than what we've seen in the last couple of seasons. And I think it was quite appropriate. Then the the episode really kicked off with a flashback mm-hmm. um, when we looked at Cersei Lannister. And I mean, at first, I, was, I don't know how, how you thought about that scene. And we won't go into too much detail about that in the opening impressions, but it caught me off guard a little bit. Is all I'm going to say. But the, already, it's, it's it's dealing with the ramifications of Tywin Lannister. That, that was one of the main points that we highlighted, Dominic, mm-hmm. at the uh, show about the season five preview. So. 
when we see Tywin Lannister lying on the on the scepter mm-hmm. um, at his funeral, we're already visually getting the impression of uh, of, of the ramification of Tywin Lannister's death with Jaime Lannister and, and, and Cersei Lannister having their conversation. But we're also beginning to see how it's affecting other areas of Westeros. It's not just King's Landing that this is being tangibly felt in, but it's being felt in Marine. It's being felt in Pentos and also in the North. Mm-hmm. Everything is starting to become a little bit... A little bit more intriguing, I think, particularly in terms of how the characters are beginning to interact a lot more with each other. This season, I think, in a way, feels a lot more different. The amount of times that we've actually seen not our characters being isolated from each other, but actually either communicating with each other or, in some cases, collaborating together. And I think that's something that we haven't really seen in the past four seasons. And when we say collaborating with each other, we've obviously got the Night's Watch and Stannis Baratheon and the yep. Wildlings and that story up in the north. And then we've got uh, we've got uh, Tyrion Lannister, the Master of Whisperers, of course, um, along with the, um, them going to see Daenerys of Stormborn Targaryen. And then we've also got the hostility, though, emerging uh, between the Brienne of Tarth and we've also got Lord Baelish and Sansa Stark. All of these characters now, they're not just in their own individual storylines anymore. They're all starting to meld together, really. And I think that's what makes this a little bit more interesting is that we're beginning to see reactions from characters we thought we knew, but being put into different situations. So overall, my impressions of these first two episodes were a great start to season five. Maybe not as explosive as season four, when, of course, we by episode two, we had seen <laughs> the end of Joffrey Baratheon. But <laughs> nevertheless, still a lot of good stuff to, to begin to dissect, and I can't wait for it. So, Dominic, I'll throw the question over to you your initial impressions of these two episodes yeah something about these episodes and especially the first one really felt different from previous seasons and not necessarily in a bad way it it just felt the first episode there were times when and and this carried over into the second episode where it seemed like we were checking in on characters whose story wasn't really being told in that episode and so and uh, you know i look at in, in the first episode with with brienne of tarth and, and podrick their story they just kind of popped up for a minute there and then we're gone and in, in it, it's interesting to see sort of how things are playing out in that way that there there seems to be a much more conscious ep- effort this season to put every character or mostly every character into every episode obviously the big exception being uh no aria in 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 the first episode and then having her have a, such a significant part in the second episode uh, and the other thing that seems to be noticing is that we also seem to be focusing in more on certain characters and other characters that we focused in on a lot in previous seasons, like Stannis Baratheon and, and Sir Davos and, and all that, are, are are becoming secondary characters who we more are who we're only really seeing interact with some of the more main characters. And I, I look at those two specifically with their relationship with Jon Snow. That seems to be the only time we ever really see them. Is when they're when they're talking with him, uh, which is which is a bit of a change from previous seasons where we saw them uh, talking to each other. Uh, pretty much, that they, they were the only people they were interacting with for the most part. Um, but other than that, it, it did really you know. There's kind of a sense of impending doom being built up in all of these episodes that you can tell something 
is coming. And, and we get a bit of that in, in the second episode with what's going on with Daenerys and, and, you know, her people sort of, well, kind of clashing with each other. And, and that's, that's something that's pretty interesting. And, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but also at the wall, you get that sense, you get the sense in, in King's Landing that things are not quite, uh, are, are not, aren't, aren't very good. They're, they're, you know, because, because of the death of Tywin, there seems to be sort of this kind of, waiting for who's going to try and strike at the Lannisters first. And it's, it's, it's one of those kind of situations that we have here. Uh, but let's, let's start out at the wall because I thought that was some of the most interesting stuff. We see, uh, well, we talked a little bit about Mance Raider in our, our previous episodes or previewing the season. We see him sentenced to death and he just refuses to bend the knee to Stannis Baratheon. Uh, is, is this, is this, um, you know, John accuses him of, of having just too much pride, and he he's, you know says "fuck my pride" and, and all that. But uh, doesn't it kind of seem like he is being a bit too uh, too prideful, or or do you think he he's making the right decision here? To say you'd make the right decision by allowing yourself to be burnt alive yeah. at the stake would would not be the most appropriate reference. I have to say, yeah. with regards to that. But I, as, as an audience member, and you can relate more to Jon Snow in this context, where you are frustrated with Mance Raider. You're saying to yourself, why? Why don't you just bend the knee? You will live. The free folk will be given the opportunity to actually live in the domain of Stannis Baratheon, who has promised to let the wildlings be recognized as common citizens in the realm. And Stannis has flaws, as many other characters do in this show, but he does seem to stick to his word, to be fair to him. I mean, we see with Sir Davos, even though he punished him for stealing that food or or, or, or some supplies, um, he still was appointed as a, a nobleman because of his act of bravery. So I, I, Stannis Baratheon respects that. Mm-hmm. But Mance Raider, he, he doesn't want to bend the knee because he believes that the free folk won't respect him, that they won't follow him anymore, and that he has to stick to, stick to his own principles. And if he's seen to be repudiating them, then he's lost it all. Yeah. And he he wants to stick and uphold his ethos to the very end. Yeah. And that's why he won't bend the knee to Stannis. He's a king beyond the wall. He doesn't bend down to anyone. And it's going to be interesting to see how this really affects Jon Snow because a lot of a lot of characters have spoken about Jon Snow and his connection to the wildlings. Can he ever bend the knee once again? Yeah. I mean, we, we'll, we'll come on to Jon Snow a little bit more later, but obviously that conversation with Stannis in the second episode is quite an interesting one to get a bit of insight into Jon's thoughts and and feelings at that point. But with regards to Mance Raider, you can understand why he does it. And he wants to uphold his principles. And he even says in the episode, he's afraid to die. He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to, at least, uh, uh, least of all, being burnt at the stake. I mean, uh, that's sure. one of the most horrible ways to die. He was thinking, sure. oh, am I going to be beheaded? No, I'm going to be burnt at the stake <laughs> alive. And obviously, John gives that mercy kill. Um, but for Mance Raider, I, I, his storyline was really coming to an end at this point. He kind of lost it in a previous episode, so yeah. it wasn't particularly shocking or surprising that he bit the dust in the first episode. Perhaps maybe the way 
he died and the way it was portrayed i thought it was fantastically executed the way that we all we managed to look at all of the characters reactions the different characters so we look at samuel tarley we looked at um the wildling torment giant spain and we're yeah. also looking at the daughter of Stannis Baratheon as well. And it's interesting to look at those particular characters because I think they're going to be, uh, excuse the pun for Star Wars fans, the fulcrum <laughs> of, of this particular season. Right. So, Dominic, I'll throw it over to you to give you, well, ask for your thoughts on, on Mance Raider and, and whether you can really empathize with his decision-making. I, I can't empathize with him. I, I, I really can. I, I think, you know, it, part of his thing is he wants to be free, um, but he's also looking at what's best for his people. And, you know, it, it seemed at the end of season four that he was, you know, willing to make a, make a deal with the Night's Watch so that his people could come over to the other side of the wall and survive the winter. And in this episode, it, it almost seemed he had he became more interested in being the leader. And I, I do think his, his pride got to him a little bit. Um, it, it wasn't so much about, you know, not wanting to, to kneel to Stannis Baratheon. It was about wanting to, uh, to be, remain the leader of the, of the, uh, of the free folk. And if, if they don't, cause if they don't have a leader, you know, it, it looks like there's going to be chaos later in this season, uh, as a result of, of his decision. And the fact that he sort of says, you know what, I'm just going to die instead of, uh, instead of sticking around and, and and trying to to help the free folk and and trying to get them beyond the wall, I think if this was a situation where he had to you know kind of weigh his own desires up against what was best for the free folk, and I kind of think he went with his own with his own desires. His own desires to remain free, or not not so much to remain free, but to remain the leader. Because you know if they're going to survive the winter, then they have to go over to the other side of the wall now whether the wildlings would have ever stuck with stannis baratheon is another question altogether perhaps if mance wasn't around as maybe we'll see later in the season uh they won't stick with uh with uh with stannis baratheon and there'll be all kinds of of chaos and problems and maybe if mance raider had have stuck around and gone with the wildlings he would have been able to keep them on the side of or keep them on side basically not have them go crazy base uh go crazy <laughs> and and kill everybody uh, as we saw them do in, in in last season so you know it was an interesting scene to sort of to watch him kind of have to weigh the the, the way you know the options and it, i kind of feel like maybe there was a bit of a lose-lose situa- situation it's either he dies and the wildlings disperse he's get, sacrifices his ideals and the uh, and the wildlings stop following him and disperse. So, really, you almost kind of the blame for all this kind of has to go on on Stannis for forcing this to happen. But at the same time, we also know that Stannis is is pretty much, is pretty power hungry at this point, and he wanted the wildling army. And you know, if he doesn't get what he wants, well, then he's going to to burn this guy in a pretty brutal fashion literally but that, i guess but, that, but that's what's interesting though isn't it i guess if we, we link on to stannis baratheon briefly we noticed that throughout the past three seasons he's always indulged in his philosophy of the divine right of kings yes he believes he's the true king of westeros yes and this supposed king of the north 
that's not going to be accepted or consented to in his mindset. And it's only when we start seeing Stannis interact with other characters that we can really see a different perception of it. Because we've been staying at Dragonstone with Stannis Baratheon, Sir Davos and a Red Woman for so long that we kind of just accepted that Stannis and this is how he interacts with his, his council. But when we actually put him in a different situation with the Night's Watch and the Wildlings, we get a completely different perspective. Yeah. And I think that has really been demonstrated by the reactions of those Night's Watchmen and the Wildlings to the burning of Mance Raider alive. Yeah. We've seen that happen so many times, but when we see it to a character we know and can empathize with, oh, sure. suddenly it's a completely different interpretation and Stannis is made to look like the real bad guy here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's sticking in the north, let's talk a bit about Jon Snow. And we see that he makes the decision to basically put Mance out of his misery to end the the burning alive by shooting an arrow into him, basically going against everything that that Stannis told him to do. And we see that that Jon he's not really he's not loyal to Stannis. He doesn't seem to be loyal to this this one particular king. And I guess that's part of the Night's Watch thing is that they're not loyal necessarily to the king. They're more loyal to the, to the realm. Kind of, kind of like what, uh, what old Varys is always trying to, to tell people. Um, and, and so we, he makes that decision and, and goes against that. What do you think that says about, about Jon Snow's character? Well, Jon Snow is a, is a three, a free minded thinker. He, since he's been with the wildlings the last two seasons, He's unable to accept authority in the same way, in the same manner. He's never going to bend the knee to the king. The only opportunity and, and, and thoughts of actually indulging in this real, I guess, fantasy and dream of becoming, not necessarily king, but at least in doing something outside of the Night's Watch and, and, and going back into the real world of Restoros and, and the political arena there, was when Ned Stark got his head chopped off and Rob went to war. Mm-hmm. That was the only time in his mind when there was a true conundrum of whether I should stick with the Night's Watch or whether I should leave. Yeah. However, however, there is a point in the second episode, yes. which is quite interesting, when Stannis Baratheon offers John the chance of acclaiming and, and, and excelling into the title of a Stark, becoming a Stark. That's something that um, sorry, that John's always dreamed of. It's what he's always envisioned about since he was a child. He said that as much. And Sam Tiley was pushing him to do it. Yeah. But what does he do instead? He becomes a Lord Commander. Mm-hmm. And I think that really does demonstrate now where his loyalties truly lie, even though that when he was younger, that was something he dreamed of. Yeah. He can't imagine now breaking ties with the Night's Watch. And really, Stannis has provided him the ultimate, I guess, um, the, the ultimate temptation there. That's something that he's wanted for his whole life. Now he refuses it. I think if you said that in season one, Jon Snow would have bitten your hand off. Oh, yeah. Would have left the Night's Watch and you would never have seen him be who he was at this point in the season. Yeah. So I I'll think... throw it over to you, Dominic, and I'll, I'll ask you to highlight more, I guess, on the on the election of Jon Snow instead of Alistair Fawn. I mean, did that really surprise you? Because beforehand, (laughs) everyone was saying, oh, Alistair Fawn's a short to win. But I guess in Game of Thrones, we should (laughs) expect the unexpected now. Yeah. Well, see, I I, I figured... uh, Well, well, I'll say this. I I think that from... That the events of the the prior episode and 
in in these two episodes basically show why John was the best choice to be to be a Lord Commander uh, because he is willing to make the the right decision. You know, we, we were t- you were mentioning how Stannis is you know burning people alive, and we're seeing how that makes him look as not a very good ruler. We see Jon Snow. You know, he re- recognizes that this guy has to die for what he's done. But he does it in a humane kind of way. I mean, as, as humane as putting an arrow into somebody can be, uh, and so he, you know, he puts Mance out of his misery. Kind of, you know, it's it's reminiscent of what of something Ned Stark would have done. You know, he always made sure he had sort of a clean cut to take the head off of whoever he was beheading. You know, as we saw that going back to the very first episode, and so we we see that, and we also see that he's faced with temptation again. He's faced with the temptation to go off and 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 leave and to go back into as you mentioned the the real world quote unquote and he turns it down he's loyal in a way that you know you can bet a lot of those other members of the night's watch aren't you can bet if they were given the option to leave they would have they would have gone back they would have been lord of winterfell they would have been warden of the north and, and, and all that and instead um we get john snow who chooses to stay with the Night's Watch. He chooses to be loyal. You know, now we've seen him basically be tempted by both sides. He he was tempted by Egret last season and, and the seasons, or not last seasons, but in previous seasons uh, to uh, to join the Free Folk. Uh, and he chose to go back to the Night's Watch. And now he was tempted by Stannis to go back into the, the realms of, of kings and, and queens and, and everything in, in Westeros, and he turned it down again. And so he's ultimately the best leader because... He's he's loyal to his cause to to the bitter end. And, you know, he's also willing to make the right but fair decision. And, you know, that's something that Stannis Baratheon may have once been able to do. I think, you know, Sir Davos is evidence of that. But I think he's been so corrupted, corrupted by Melisandre, uh, by the Red Woman, that he is just not able to do that anymore. And he's so corrupted by his his, his search for power that... You know what? He'd rather burn Mance Raider alive to send a message than, you know, just doing doing the the, th- the humane thing, doing the thing that John or Ned or any true fair ruler would have done and uh, putting him out of his misery or killing him, but killing him quickly so he didn't suffer. And so I think that ultimately John's election was a result of of uh, people sort of seeing this. And I think of uh, of Meister Eamon. Uh, recognizing this in John from their their past conversations, so that that's what I think is 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 what we saw there. I think that we saw the the exact reason why John should be a leader in those first two episodes. Is that he 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 turned his back on temptation and he made a fair decision, and so I, I think that that is ultimately why John is the right choice for leader. And we'll we'll see how he how he does at it later on in this season. The final question I want to ask Dominic briefly sure. about the North is what do you expect will happen between Stannis and John? Do you think that Stannis is trying to not certainly groom, but at least court him to become a protege of yeah. Stannis Baratheon? Yeah. Do you think I, that's the ambition with John here? No, I I think what what Stannis wants is is he wants to use John. He wants to use John as a as a tool, as a weapon, whether it's to 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 be the leader of the North or to get the wildlings on his side. I don't think that Stannis thinks of John as you know a potential 
member of his his high council or anything. I think he just sees him as a means to an end. And I think that's how Stannis sees most people as just a means to an end. As they're just a reason, they're just a tool for him to use on his his quest for power. And I think that's what we saw. You know, he the only reason he offered him John Stark was to get him to be on his side was because he was faced with somebody who who uh, believed that the Starks were the true kings of the North, not not him. And so he's he's just seeing he's trying desperately to get John on his side just because he thinks it will help him win. I don't think he has any higher hopes for for John helping him in any significant way after he takes power. I, I don't know. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I echo many of your sentiments. I think there, Dominic, it's, it's an intriguing one. And as you said, what fascinates me about the way these episodes have been projected is the fact that Stannis Baratheon, the red woman and, and Sadavos are really projected as periphery characters in, yeah. in the, in these two episodes. They're not at the forefront anymore. They're not, the focal point and so it's it's interesting to see really it seems to be based upon the territory the fact that we're in the camp of the night's watch now they're the characters which dominate mm-hmm. not stannis baratheon and his entourage yeah that's a good point that you know once you enter sort of you enter the domain of Jon snow and, and samuel tarley and 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 the, and the likes of them it's there they if the focus remains on them anybody else is kind of secondary uh but let's let's move on let's talk uh let's talk about what's going on with Daenerys because it's a very it's it's a, a very different from what we've seen in the past where she's always been treated as a liberator now we're starting to see the people that you know we're seeing the masters basically rise up and try and take things back, make things the way that they used to be. And we see her, she's forced to handle this situation and she's also forced to deal with dissent in her ranks, which she's really never had to deal with before because, you know, the Unsullied are just purely loyal. I mean, the closest thing to that was, was Jorah last season. And really Jorah hasn't tried to betray her for three and a half seasons. He's been completely on her side since the, since he, since he helped, uh, since since he saved her from the wine merchant back in season one, so uh, I, I'm curious on your take on how you think she's handling this this uh, this new change, this new challenge this season thus far. She's struggling with it, yeah, big time. And let's talk about the legacy of Tywin Lannister. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to think that really a lot of what's happened with Daenerys Targaryen began with Tywin Lannister sending that letter of Jorah Mormont being provided a royal pardon. Uh, You know, don't forget, Jorah Mormont left. Then that's when Daenerys had to put her dragons enclosed in that cave. Bearing in mind, they're not very happy of her at the moment. That's another interesting topic to bring up a little bit later. But, yeah, the social strife within Marine, I think it's very, very intriguing. And obviously you've got the masters on one side. The harpies seem to be the name of these resistant fighters who want to reclaim their power. And then, of course, you've got the, 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 the free slaves. Well, they're not necessarily slaves as they as they were before, but... Yeah, from from a different perspective, you could say they are because you know they're having to still bow to the wishes and, and whim of Daenerys Targaryen, even though she says the law is the law. Mm-hmm. It's still her law. Yeah. She's the one making the decisions. Um, so it's interesting to look at it from that angle, and it, it's you talk about imminent uh, 
foreboding circumstances soon to arise, well, there's certainly an imminent confrontation between the Masters and Daenerys about to take place, that's for sure. And that scene at the end of episode two really signifies a culmination in the clash between the citizens of Marine and the Masters. It really is about to all kick off. And Daenerys is not just steadily losing control, but I think rapidly. You see the execution of that that former slave just sparked all sorts of panic and chaos. Yeah. People were throwing stones at her. Um, people were fist fighting with the masters and, and, and the slaves. The unsullied soldiers were having to hold them all back. It's looking very, very precarious right now. And this is really the worst time that Daenerys will, <laughs> would have to be losing control of her dragons right now. Um, two of them absolutely loathe her because they've locked, they've been locked in a cage pretty much. Yeah. Uh, figuratively locked in a cave. And then <laughs> the other one, Drogon, yeah. he's doing his own thing now. He, he's just based on self-interest now. He's, he, at the moment, he seems quite disinterested with anything to do with Daenerys. So it's, it's looking very inauspicious for her, but I'd be interested to see your interpretation of these events in the last two, two episodes, really beginning with that, quite brutal scene with the unsullied man being stabbed in that brothel yeah yeah it's 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 it's, you know it's something that she has to deal with something that she'll probably have to deal with throughout the rest of the series is people challenging her rule who don't like her policies and i mean that's just part of ruling and so she has to deal with it and and learn how to overcome it and i think it's it's really interesting to see sort of this massive backlash uh by by the people against her because so far, all we've seen is people who are very happy to see her around. And then I, I do have some questions about the way she rules. You know, she was willing to to give a trial to the captured, uh, the captured uh, um, traitor uh, or the captured uh, rebel, I guess we, we can call him. Uh, and yet she sends her own, uh, you know, councilman basically to death uh, just because somebody told her that, that he killed he killed the prisoner. So you know there is a little bit of uh, I I mean that's that's a that could just be you know a fact of you know timing on TV and they just don't have time for everything, uh, but it, it was a an interesting way to go, uh, and you know it'll be interesting to see continue seeing how this plays out because we see her you know she it's suggested that she brings back the fighting pits as as a way to. Uh, to keep the people happier, to keep them at least entertained and, and all that. And she's pretty against doing that sort of thing. So it'll be interesting to see how she has to, how she has to deal with uh, these kind of things. And the, really the scene that stood out for me in this, these episodes is when uh, Sir Barristan finally sort of sits her down and tells her about the Mad King, tells her about her father, what he was really like, because it's, it's pretty clear that she didn't know. And he was actually there. He witnessed all of, of Aegon Targaryen's uh, travesties or uh, and all of the horrible things he did. And I think, you know, to see him sort of explain to her, you know, this is what he was like. Now you have to be the opposite of that. And I think that's something she's going to have to keep with her as she continues for the, through this season. And it would be interesting to see her come face to face with more people who remember the Mad King and remember what he was actually like and what he actually did. And... 
and then sort of her have to deal with the fact that uh, there's a certain amount of baggage that is attached with the name Targaryen. And because, because really the last Targaryen, the last Targaryen king, at, for the, at least, was not a good one. It, he was a, a bad person. And so to bring – so for her to say, okay, I'm bringing back the Targaryen dynasty – well, people may not be too crazy about that. They may be a little bit uh, concerned, and rightfully so, uh, about that whole idea. So uh, we'll we'll have to see more how this plays out uh, over over the next next season or so. But uh, I'm curious on your take on on that scene involving you know her learning about uh, her father. She seemed very surprised and shocked by it, really, didn't she? Yes, yeah. as, as you noticed, and. I I really think she's starting to learn about ruling. It's, it's, at the moment with Daenerys, it, it does seem to be a little bit of trial and error method. We'll try this, see how it works. Mm-hmm. She, she's really taken these steps, but uh, you know, steps in learning how to rule. But I think mean, the difficulty is she finds herself in a major hotspot where it's, it's, it's the culture is completely alien to these people. What? Yeah. Daenerys is trying to impose the idea of a trial. Yeah, as as, as the former slave stated, uh, uh, we don't do trials here. It's it's do or die. You know, you got to fight for your life. You got to fight for your survival. Um, and Daenerys is trying to impose seemingly a, a Westernized culture. You could argue. Yeah, uh, you, can, you can look back at that history as well. I won't, won't go into any historical examples. Be here forever, but <laughs> it's it, it's interesting to to look at it from that perspective. That to these locals, this is a completely distinct culture to anything that they've had to grasp before, and it's it's not going to be met well with many people or. Uh, with, a, with a lot of people that took really not just the minorities but i think the majority of people and now in the perception of people's eyes i think the execution of the former slave is going to make daenerys look like a bit of a tyrant yeah. even though we know behind the scenes she's not yeah she's actually trying to learn what's best how best to rule but through the trial and error system that she's imposing is making her look like a cruel and malicious ruler her rule in Marine, I believe, is going to come to a very swift end. What's going to happen next? I don't know how it's going to end. I foresee that someone's going to be biting the dust in that council, though. Yeah. And part of me is thinking that it's going to be Sir Barristan, personally. Oh, no, don't kill him off. He's, he's epic. Ah, can't kill him I, off. The main, main reason I think that is with... We'll come on to Tyrion and Varys soon. So Barristan seems to be the one who is the most expendable. Yeah. If Tyrion and Varys get involved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Tyrion and Varys uh, quickly because you know they they were a, a focus in the first episode, but they weren't uh, hugely involved in the second one. What struck me in the first episode more focus more on Varys this week because Tyrion it's it's really just a matter of him dealing with the fact that he's now in exile, that he's been, you know, his family has, or, you know, his family has officially, although, although Jamie unofficially hasn't, uh, but turned, the, turned their back on him. And he's basically on his own in a foreign land. But I, I thought it was really interesting to see Varys in this episode because he, you know, he explained what he was, he was doing. You know, he, he recognized that uh, Robert Baratheon was not, a good king and you and you maybe wonder if he perhaps 
foresaw some of uh, you know Tywin's maneuverings later on to to put the Lannisters into even more power, and so he tried to bring back the Targaryen dynasty, and essentially failed. I mean, that's that's the thing that we're we're seeing right now is that season one, you know, his plan in season one essentially failed. He was not able to get a, a new Targaryen on the throne to get Robert Baratheon out of there. And as a result, he kicked off this massive, massive war that, is, that went on, uh, the War of the Five Kings and, and all this death and destruction that has followed. And he sort of has to carry that. that you, I, to me, that seems like such a huge weight that he is now carrying. And he almost seems like such, so much more of a tragic character almost now because he was trying to do the right thing. He was trying to do what was best for the realm. And it turned out to, you know, basically backfire on him. And, you know, you can see he's really pushing Tyrion to go and join Daenerys uh, out out there in the, in the east because, you know, he sees her as his second chance, his second chance to get it right. Now, we can debate whether or not um, Viserys, um, Danny's brother back in season one, would have been any better a king than Robert Baratheon. I would I would hasten to say he probably would have been worth wor- worse. Um, you know, he, he had some mad king-ish tendencies, it, it looked like. Uh, so, you know, it, it may turn out to be for the best should Daenerys find herself on the Iron Throne at the end of the series. Uh, you know, if, if Westeros does get a true, fair, and wise ruler, then it may work out for the best. But right now, in this moment, you know, you can see he's really focused on getting her on the throne because he, he, it's his way of making up for all of the horrors that he has, he has essentially brought on the country or the world because of of his actions that failed. I don't know. Did you get that? Did you get that same sense from from those scenes, or did you read and read something else into them? Yeah, the Lord Varys scenes were very fascinating to to look at because Varys, as the master of whisperers, is not one to really divulge a lot of his secrets. Yeah. He keeps his cards very close to his chest. As distinct parallels of course with lord baelish in that respect which is why when those two characters indulged in their interplay it was it was extremely compelling to watch as far as lord varus goes the idea of the restoration of the targaryen dynasty of course that's callbacks to season one with illyrio and i remember when illyrio and lord varus had their conversation in the dungeons i believe yeah. of king's landing whilst Arya was listening in and it all makes a lot more sense now, doesn't it? Uh, it was a little bit of mystery surrounding why was Varys hanging out with this guy? Yeah. And now we know that there is a distinct alliance and there's this secret cult, really, isn't there, of attempting to push Daenerys into the position where she will become the ruler of Westeros. Now, whether that comes into fruition, of course, it remains to be seen. The first question you want to ask yourself is whether Tyrion and Varys are both going to make it there to Marine. And why they're stopping off at Volantis. Mm -hmm. So that's another question to ask yourself is what's going on in Volantis that that Lord Varys wants to um, visit about. So that's 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 another intriguing question to ask, I guess. Yeah. As far as the as the storyline of Tyrion and and Varys goes along with Daenerys, I anticipate they will meet up. But for sure. whether it's going to culminate in, in uh, Daenerys coming onto the throne, a, a lot of this still factors into what happens up 
um, away from the well at the wall, across the wall, really on the other side sure. with the White Walkers. Still think they're a force that's to be reckoned with and get down on a low, but I, I have a feeling they'll probably come back in a big way soon enough. So, uh, yeah, it's just an interesting one, isn't it, to look at the relationship between Varys and, and Tyrion. What you can say is that those two characters have such a good rapport with each other, and whenever those two characters are on screen, you're immediately drawn into it. It hooks you in, doesn't it? Yeah. It's so compelling to just listen to two really insightful and well-articulate individuals are probably the most articulate in Game of Thrones. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to them more and more as the season progresses. Um, I do want to touch quickly on Cersei uh, before we, before we wrap up. Um, you know, you mentioned the flashback off the top. It's really interesting to see her, to see that flashback and the way they used it because uh, you know, from a certain point of view, basically everything has come true except for the fact that there is a, a what was the last thing that a new younger, uh, younger queen was going to yeah. take her place. Yeah. And, you know, you can argue whether that's um, uh, Marjorie Tyrell or a Daenerys Targaryen uh, or perhaps even somebody else we don't know about that. That's always a possibility, I guess. Um but it was interesting to see her sort of trying to exist without Tywin and uh, how frustrating it is for her because she was, you know, one of those few characters that was trying to, she's, you know, ex- exist uh, as if nothing has changed. She's tr- trying almost to take Tywin's place. And, and I'm curious on your take on, on her in these episodes. The tone as you said, of season five has changed, but I think the tone of King's Landing in particular is extremely palpable. Cersei and, and Jamie Lannister trying to rule without Tywin Lannister. It, 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 well, it's really Queen Cersei at this point. Um, she's still digging her claws into, into Tomlin. It, it really is changing. And I think one of the, the scenes that really epitomized this was in that second episode with the new faces on the small council. You've got that new Meister from the Citadel yep. who seems to be enacting some really questionable and unscrupulous um, experiments at the moment. We're not really sure where that's going to lead to, but there's, there's hints of something really going on behind the scenes there. Um, you've obviously got um, the Tyrell, Mance Tyrell, who clearly is just a, a sycophant. You've also got Grand Meister, Sycophanta, um, Queen Cersei that is. You've got Grand Meister Aemond, who really has very little power. And then the only one who actually bothers standing up for himself is Kevin Lannister, who says, you know, I'm not going to be your pawn. I'm, I'm going to leave now. So anyone who's actually got any backbone has just said, yeah, I'm going to leave. If Tomlin, the king, tells me what I need to do, then I'll do it. But I'm not going to be your puppet here. She's really just left with underlings. And I think it really demonstrates the waning power of Cersei at this point, that she's yeah. only able to recruit these three individuals <laughs> who clearly are not the brightest people in the world. And now she sent Jamie off on a mission to rescue Marcella. So Dawn's going to be coming in very soon. I think we don't need to touch on that this episode because it was only really a two-minute scene. But uh, I'm sure that's going to be coming in a big way, that story revolving Marcella, Jamie Lannister and Bronn, of course. Mm-hmm. And I think the flashback was just interesting because it seemed from Cersei's point of view as though everything had really fallen apart, that all of the wishes were coming true now. What was left for her? 
you know, she she the witch said she was going to be queen for a time. She's desperate to hold on to that, and it doesn't seem as though that's uh, going to be the case. So I'll throw it briefly over to you and yeah. um, give you your thoughts before we finally touch upon Littlefinger and Sansa. Yeah, yeah, it was a, you know, she's one of those characters that there are times when you want to feel bad for her, you want to be on her side, but she makes it so difficult. Because she is so cruel and, and, you know, she's, she's, she's not quite evil. I wouldn't say she's evil, but she's cruel. And for that reason, you can't really like her, you know, but there are times, you know, you can, you can empathize, empathize, excuse me, empathize with her uh, when she's trying to keep her power because, you know, we understand that she has been for her entire life fighting for power and that she's in the society that keeps her down because she's, she's a woman. And she's not able to rise to the power that she thinks she is able to uh, achieve, that she thinks she's owed. And so to see her sort of fighting to keep that control, you know, it's it's hard not to empathize with that to a certain level. Uh, but then you remember who she is and, and what she's really like. And and one thing that I thought thought was really interesting in these episodes, and it's, it's something that I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit more as, as the season progresses, is that it seems that religion is going to start playing a, a much bigger part in, in Westeros. You know, we've, we've always heard mentions of the of the the the, the, the seven gods, the old gods and the new, the the, the light of the seventh, the the, uh, the Lord of Light, and all all that, and. Yeah, and yet it, it hasn't been a huge factor outside of, of the Stannis storyline. But in in this episode, we did see Cersei come face to face with Lancel, Lancel Lannister again. He seems to have uh, committed himself to a certain religion, and, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see that become a much bigger factor in, in future episodes. And it'll be interesting to see how the show handles that, and and how it how it covers that, and how. Could the could what was once a war purely over power and politics turn into a war of religion at some point? Which that would be a a a, a very different take on on or a very different uh, kind of war than what we've seen before, and that would be that would be interesting. I, I'd be interested to see how how that would play out. But that's something that I'm sure we'll get into, if not next week, then in the future weeks to come. And uh, before we wrap things up. Let's talk briefly about Sansa Stark and Lord Peter Baelish as they begin their little journey to go, well, probably back to Winterfell, it seems, based on, based on previews. Uh, but uh, what, was, what was your take on, on what they were up to? Because it seemed they, uh, you know, they left Robin, they left Robin, uh, who was trying to, trying, emphasis on trying to learn how to fight. Um, and then... You know, we see Sansa come face to face with Brienne of Tarth, and then poor Brienne is really not succeeding in her mission to keep the Stark girls safe. Um, you know, none, neither of them wants her help, and so now she's kind of without a mission, which is a, an interesting take on on her because she's always been one character with a with a mission, and and, and that's always been what that's been basically her identity is her mission. Which it'll be interesting to see how she adapts or if she can adapt. To not having a mission, uh, but what was your take on, on Sansa and and Littlefinger in in these episodes? I think this story for me is becoming the most intriguing at the moment because it's, there's so much mystery surrounding what their end goal really is. And we talk about great rapport of characters. We've got Lord Varys and Tyrion, of course. I really am liking the interplay between Sansa and Littlefinger at the moment. Both of them seem to be extremely 
insightful and perceptive. She she knew straight away that Littlefinger had received that that little message, and, and she's really inquisitive about it. You know, even though he kind of tried to hide it away. Um, and so, good news for Littlefinger. His marriage proposal was accepted, so he is truly um, linked. Well, he's, he's certainly got legitimate right to own the Eyrie, and and Sansa, of course, needs to um, is now her niece. Yeah, and. I think that where that story is going to lead to, of course, is Winterfell. And we know who's there at Winterfell. It's, of course, the Bolton clan. So it's going to be interesting to see how those characters really interact, I think. And another little tidbit, which wasn't actually involving the scene of Sansa and Littlefinger, but way up in the north, was when Stannis uh, Stannis noted about the niece of the Commander Mormont pledging allegiance to the Starks. Yeah. Very Could perhaps there be a, a confrontation between the Baratheons and Starks or an alliance? I, I can see something happening there. But it's, it's really compelling at the moment. And as you said with Brianna Tarth, you do have to sympathize with her character because she's been tasked with this mission and she's trying her best, but she just keeps popping up at the wrong times. The time's really when it seems to be going okay for the Starks. So yeah. <laughs> for Sansa Stark, she has no reason to really want to leave. And Lord Baelish, to be fair to him, he is... He's very good at manipulating past events, really, to t- twist, twisting the words, really. From Sansa's perspective, to a, you know, to a stranger, Brienne Tarth has failed. Yeah. She failed to save Renly Baratheon. She failed to save her mother. Why on earth should she trust her? Yeah. Brienne Tarth. But w- when or if they do go to Winterfell, it's, it's going to be an interesting one, I think. So, Dominic, briefly throw it over to you as we're running out of time here. Yeah. For <laughs> Sans, Sansa and Littlefinger. Yeah, you know their their story was was very brief in these episodes. We haven't we haven't spent too too much time with them yet. Hopefully that will change over the next next couple episodes. But it it really does seem like they're on some kind of mission. They're on some, they're going to to complete something. They're going to challenge uh, the status quo in a way that we haven't seen those characters ever really do it. Or well, with Littlefinger, not since since season one. Uh, well, I guess Littlefinger's been doing it. I, 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 I misspoke there. He's been doing that with, you know, poisoning Joffrey and, and all that. Um, but uh, with Sansa, it'll be interesting to see how she reacts in this world of power where she's been a pawn and, and, uh, and you know, Joffrey's torture, torture, torture toy for so long. So to now see her out and about and, and doing her own thing is, is a very nice change. And to see her, you know, turn down the help of, of Brienne of Tarth, and and you almost wonder if if Brienne could be a, a strong ally for them in whatever their quest is, and perhaps that was a mistake not to um, not to try and bring her on board. Not to say that Brienne ever would have gone on board. I don't think she would have. But I think you're right. You know, it's it's, it's hard not to sympathize with her because uh, you know she's you know she's trying trying desperately to complete this mission, and and nobody really wants her help, and. So we'll we'll have to see where she goes from here, but yeah. So uh, that is uh, going to unfortunately have to be it for this week. We're gonna have to skip our, our favorite quotes this this week. We are on, on a bit of a time crunch. I, I apologize. This is on me. Uh, so, but we will be back next week. But before we go, before we go, we do have time for final thoughts and score out of 10. So I'll throw it over to you, Kieran, for your final thoughts and a score out of 10 for 
uh, for The Wars to Come and The House of Black and White. And next week, we will also uh, we'll deal with Arya's story just because we didn't have time for it this week. We'll get into that properly next week. Okay, Wars to Come and The House of Black and White. Both of them were great openings to Season 5. Not the best, best episodes, but they certainly were compelling enough to really have this long discussion about it which is fantastic yeah as i said really intrigued to see where lord baelish and sansa's story is going to go that's going to be extremely interesting want to see what really happens in winterfell and i really think the north in general is becoming the most compelling um geographical area to actually focus upon what's going to happen in the north john snow he's now been elected as lord commander but where is that actually going to lead to and you know sir alistair Ford made the made the interesting question there um, is he going to be the leader of the Night's Watch or the Wildlings, or both? Where is yeah. it going to lead to? Those are the questions that we really want to get answered. And of course, we've got Daenerys with Tyrion and Lord Ferris at their backs now, so their stories are beginning to intertwine and interact. But another interesting point to raise, of course, is Dawn. What's going to be happening with Marcella, and what's going to be happening between the Lannisters and the and the Martells? Those are all questions that have yet to remain unanswered, and that's what's so good with Game of Thrones. So, the wars to come, I will give a score of 8 out of 10. It was a solid start. And I'd probably give uh, 8 out of 10 for the second episode, The House of Black and White. Yeah. So, Dominic, over to you. Final thoughts and score out of 10. Yeah, I agree. It was a good start to Season 5, like you said. Not the best episodes they've ever done, but still solid, uh, st- solid enough. Really uh, doing what is good first couple episodes of a season should do introducing lots of ideas that will be picked up on in future episodes and, and dealt with in the future and, and i'm looking forward to seeing where all of these storylines go uh, like i said we'll, we'll handle aria's story next week but i'll echo your sentiments and give these episodes both of them eight out of ten so thank you everybody for listening we want to give a shout out to the Exeter University Game of Thrones Society for uh, for sharing our, our page over there. We, we, we highly recommend uh, going and checking checking that out. So just search for Exeter Game of Thrones Society on Facebook. Uh, we also want uh, and, and 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 hey, if you go to Exeter University and you go to go to the society meetings, maybe you'll see Kieran there. Uh, uh, Kieran, do you want to let the people know what is coming up on Expression FM this week? Yeah, Expression FM is kicking off once again with a bang and it's going to be absolutely fantastic as all the shows commence once again next week. I've got my new show starting on Mondays from 6 to 7 GMT time so that's actually a relatively respectable time for people who are five hours behind me. A nice little afternoon lunch break as you can listen in to Duggan's Disco Dive as we're looking at some nice iconic high school disco songs which everyone used to love back in the day whether it's your S. Clouds, whether it's your Britney Spears. I don't know why those two suddenly came to mind they're probably not even going to be in my first show but um, and also the, the iconic classic ones now such as Uptown Funk so uh, please do listen to that if you can do that's, that's um, on www.expression.fm uh, our Twitter handle is at expressionfm and our Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash expressionfm and thus far in terms of sports and all of the other content shows we're not really sure what's quite going on yet we're waiting for a committee meeting on that but whenever news breaks then I'll be the first to air it on here but Dominic over to you I think you did a little recording yesterday did you not? Yeah. I think I might have heard you somewhere once yeah. again yeah there was, a, there was a new episode of the Star Wars Underworld podcast out talking about the new trailer for Star Wars Episode 7 The Force Awakens plus a uh, recap of, of the first day and, and the day before uh, Star Wars Celebration Anaheim uh, so lots of fun stories about what was going on there as well as 
lots of in-depth discussion about that trailer and, and what does it all mean? What does this say about the movie? Uh, we do it from both the spoiler and spoiler-free perspective. So if you are worried, if you are avoiding spoilers for that film, you can listen to that without much concern. Just stop listening when we say spoiler alert. Uh, but yeah, so check that out. Just head over to StarWarsUnderworld.com and you'll find it there or by searching uh, for the Star Wars Underworld in iTunes. Speaking of iTunes, you can search for this show there. Just search for The Watchers of Westeros. Uh, leave us a review. We'd always love to th- love to see that. Five stars are especially appreciated. Uh, also, be sure to like us on Facebook. Just search for The Watchers of Westeros on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at WatcherWesteros, at DominicJ25, and at CDuggan6. Uh, in between shows, you can send us an email at, to watchersofwesteros at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts on these first two episodes, or maybe let us know your thoughts on the next episode, episode three of season five, High Sparrow. And we'll be back next week to talk about that. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, we'll see you. We'll, we'll, I don't have a quote ready. I'm so sorry. I, I This show just snuck up on me. So, So we'll just say... Goodbye. That's from me, Kieran. Yeah. <laughs> and Dominic. <laughs>